Hello and welcome to Science with Shweta podcast. We have with us today Dr. Parshati Patel, who is an astrophysicist and space scientist. She currently manages the public education and outreach program at the Center of Planetary Science and Exploration at Western University, Canada. She is also the co-host of Western Worlds podcast. She organizes various space-themed outreach programs, workshops, and events. Parshati is a very engaged psychomer and is passionate about space. Space science and technology. She advocates for women, women of color, and women in STEM. Let's talk to Parshati to learn more about her. Hi, Parshati. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Same here. So, Parshati, I'm going to uh, start with a question which uh, you always must have been asked. But uh, please tell us what is astrophysics. <laughs> okay, so um, um, astrophysics is actually a mixture of two things. It's astronomy and physics. So, um, uh, you know, when I call myself an astrophysicist, it means I study something that's in outer space. So astronomy deals with studying of stars, planets, um, history of the universe, uh, galaxies, cosmology, things like that. Uh, but I use very strong physics to understand a lot of those processes. So um, I am in particular a stellar astrophysicist. So I studied stars and um, disks, disks around stars and where the planets eventually form. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, that's what an stellar astrophysicist do. Oh, well, that's great. <laughs> uh, so um, I, since we were small and in our childhood, most of us wanted to be an astronaut and we are fascinated by stars and space. What was your calling for uh, astrophysicists? Uh, it's actually a very... Um, interesting story. Okay. <laughs> it, uh, it goes back to when I think I was around 12 or 13 years old and, and my parents took me to Mumbai to actually uh, go um, to see the planetarium. Mm -hmm. uh, it was our family vacation so it was kind of a fun thing that we were doing um, but when I saw I just had more questions. I'm like, okay, so they talked about these stars. I mean, we don't see them from our mm -hmm. house. So, you know, how many are there? And I had all of these questions. And my, my dad is a businessman. My mom is a microbiologist. And like, you know, there is no mixture <laughs> of the two <laughs> that can answer my question. Um, so they just got me books from, from the same planetarium. Mm -hmm. And so when I got home, I think I picked a couple of books. One of them was a very high level that I really didn't understand anything. Um, and so I just kept asking my parents more questions mm -hmm. from that book, and they just kept getting me more books. <laughs> and so it, the more books I was reading, um, the more I was getting more intrigued about it. And I think the time that I decided that I really wanted to pursue this was when my aunt who lived in Canada, um, you know, my mom said when she was coming, she's like, what should I get for Parshati? And, mm -hmm. and my mom's like, oh, she likes this space stuff. So, you know, maybe you get something space related. Mm -hmm. um, so she got me a telescope. Oh. And <laughs> so it was my first ever like space gift <laughs> after other than the books um, where I was able to like set it up on my on my terrace uh, and uh, I saw the moon. I was able to set up and see like Saturn, Jupiter, all like by myself. And I was like, oh, this is a really cool job <laughs> I could do for my life. Right. Not really knowing that that is really not what most mm -hmm. of the astronomers actually do. But it was kind of that that one, you know, look at the stars kind of, or planets in this case, kind of gave me that idea that, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. So that was a very thoughtful gift, I would say, because uh, to think of giving a telescope is... Uh... Definitely. And, and you know, um, luckily, when I moved to Canada, uh, 
my aunt, that's with whom I kind of led, led a lot of my life, initial life there. Uh, she supported me a lot. And so, you know, I'm glad that she actually thought of getting a, a telescope instead of just mm-hmm. books. That's what people were giving me. And I mean, yes, books were helping me in a lot of ways because I was learning a lot. But seeing things with your own eye, you it's a little different. So uh, what is the role of astrophysics in astronomy and uh, what uh, does an astrophysicist do? So um, there are a lot of different ways you can do astronomy. Mm -hmm. You can do observational astronomy where you are an observational astronomer, where what you do is you collect data, um, you know, mostly you're stationed at an observatory if you're an observational astronomer, you're collecting data and then you're using that to understand whatever, um, you know, object that you are studying. Um, I'm doing something similar, but uh, mine is a combination of the two. So um, for my PhD, what I did was I had a set of data from, um, you know, places like CFHD, which is the Canada-France Hawaii Telescope, which Mm -hmm. is one of the biggest telescopes um, in Hawaii. Um, And I had data from there. Um, Once I would have a data, I also have a model in my mind what Mm -hmm. these stars look like, what's happening around them in terms of physics. So I know the physics of how stars form. I know the physics of how disks work. So I was combining the the basic physics that I know in a computer model, and then I'm taking this data that I have, and then I'm comparing the two. So it's basically comparing what I think I know about this object, and then taking the actual data, and then trying to understand what are the similarities and differences. And if there are similarities means, okay, this part of the model is correct. Mm -hmm. And then if there are differences, we're like, all right, where did it go wrong? Or what is, why does it not make sense to what we are seeing? So uh, I'm basically using computational modeling and the data to work together. Um, There are a lot of other, I guess, astronomers in a way that you could have planetary scientists who Mm -hmm. study planets. Uh, You could have cosmologists who are basically studying and cosmology of the universe. You could have gal- uh, galactic um, astrophysicists who study galaxies. Mm-hmm. Um, I particular always loved stars and planets, so I picked a topic that was more familiar to me when I was actually learning about astronomy in my young age. So, so uh, astronomy is this one umbrella under which cosmology, astrophysics, uh, all these subjects come in. Exactly, yeah. It's it's kind of a, um, and over like you know you would say science, but then there are tons of different things mm-hmm. in the science. It's kind of the same thing for astronomy. Anything you study that's above Earth's atmosphere is kind of astronomy. Because yeah, so you know, and then there are tons of different um, astronomers or I guess scientists in astronomy that you can mm-hmm. you can get. That's great. (laughs) So uh, can you tell us about your PhD topic? I mean, it's difficult for us to understand, but you could give us just a sneak peek of it. Sure. So um, when I was reading a lot of books when I was young, I was trying to just understand how these planets were forming and how how stars would have these planets. So when I was in my undergrad and my master's, I was trying to just always concentrate on this part. So when I got to PhD, I got to pick my own topic, which is always great about having a PhD is you get to pick what you want to do. And so um, my supervisors were studying these massive stars, um, stars that are uh, three, four, five times, sometimes 10 times more massive than our, our sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and they their life is a little bit different than what our sun's life is. So because they're more massive, they, they evolve really fast. So they, they are born faster than our sun was. Um, their adult life, which is what our son is going through right now, um, goes through faster and they die fast as well. So they have a shorter lifetime mm-hmm. compared to our, our son, um, which also makes it difficult to understand what's going on because the way we study these stars are because of the, 
the the astronomical time scale is super long compared to our life mm -hmm. we look at these different objects and try to pinpoint which is point one point two point three of different stages that we are looking at um, so when they were studying those massive stars I wanted to know um, what happens to these disks so these disks where these planets are forming um, actually are inherited um, when the star forms itself. So our Earth formed from the disk of material that was there when the star, our sun was forming. Um, so I wanted to see at these massive stars how uh, the disk behaves around it, even before the planets have started forming. Mm -hmm. And the fun part about these massive stars is because their life is so short, um, that process is really fast. Exactly. <laughs> that is just very rapid. So we don't really see when they're being born because they're covered with all this dust around them. Mm -hmm. So the only way to see them is actually the light that we get from them. And then we have to deduce what's going on in there without actually being there. Um, so what I uh, was able to do with my supervisor's code, which he had already made, where, he, where we could put in a star of whatever size mass that we would like, mm -hmm. um, we can put in a disk around that. This is where all the physics comes in. Um, and then I can see, I can evolve the disk over time if I want. Or I can say, all right, after, let's say, 100 million years, what happens to the disk? Um, what is the disk temperature? Where is it really hot? Is it really hot close to the star or is it really hot further away? How dense is it? Is it dense close to the star? Is it dense away from the star? Because a lot of that depends on how the disk is moving and how the material is moving. So I would take that model and then I would take the data, mm -hmm. and then I would, you know, compare the two. And um, what was really interesting about the topic I picked was no one had ever tried using this simple model. Everyone mm -hmm. had always tried using what works for the sun, because that's what most of the people normally work on mm -hmm. is sun-like stars. So they had extrapolated what they were doing for sun to these kinds of stars. And uh, when they did, I was kind of puzzled because these massive stars, their structure is different. So you cannot apply the kind of theories that you apply to the sun to the massive stars. And so we used this very simple model of a star and a disk around that with simple disk physics, and we were able to reproduce what we were seeing in the stars. And so we were able to say, hey, you don't really need all these complex models, given that we don't have evidence that anything that we are seeing supports these complex models. But here is a simple model that works equally fine. <laughs> so that was like my four years of PhD in short. <laughs> like I remember listening to you that we always say science is about experimenting the simple things. We often get engaged into some complex experiments and all that stuff. But research is actually finding those simple things and doing this. Like this is what I noticed during uh, my dissertation because... Yeah. We were like, we'll do this and we'll do that most complicated things. We get into that, but it's usually the smallest thing you have to find out and you are done. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the, uh, the training mm -hmm. that, you know, you require to kind of step back and see um, it from a different perspective, mm -hmm. right? Because if everyone is, it's like a herd mentality, right? If everyone is going in one direction, is it really working? Is it really works with all the observations that we have? No, it doesn't. So how about we go ahead and think something different, right? Um, so yeah, that's that's what I love about science is you, you can be different, <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, Parshati, you're a very active psychomer and uh, why do you think is science communication so important? Um, I think... I've always loved talking. <laughs> one of the reasons why I do science come a lot. Um, but I think the main reason for why 
you know, a lot of people, like you and me, mm-hmm. do science com is actually because a lot of people don't understand what scientists actually do. That's right. And a lot of people think, why are we wasting money on science? Like, we should be, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. making technologies and making better, I don't know, medicines and stuff like that. But there's basic biology and basic physics that people need to understand that people don't generally understand because a lot of scientists are not open to talk about that work. Mm-hmm. Or most of the time they're not trained or willing to or not uh, as someone who is able to comprehend what they're doing into words that people would understand, which is totally understandable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, SciComm is, uh, varies a lot person by person, right? So a person might be great at talking to other scientists and what they do, but they may not, may not have you know, the understanding of how to talk to young kids or how to talk to um, someone who does not have a science background, mm-hmm. right? So um, I, I got into uh, SciComm because I thought it was important to, for people to understand why we do what we do mm-hmm. um, and how, uh, especially space science, how well we are connected to space, but how mm-hmm. well we are disconnected to space as well. Um, and being here on Earth, we don't realize that we are part of this giant universe um, that generally people don't think on daily basis. And, and so just to kind of get that thing, oh my God, yes, you know, this is kind of, I'm here and I'm doing this because there's something in space that's allowing me to do this, right? Uh, that, that kind of what makes me really excited about ScienceCom is, is getting that, oh my God, across to, to people. And I think uh, you, we also need to do it because many people need to know what exactly we are working on because uh, like as you said many people don't know what scientists do what they think is we do this because uh, this is what we like or as a career or as a source of money but no one looks it as a part of contribution that we make to the uh, scientific discoveries or science uh, background for people we set a base and then we go on uh, doing research on that so yeah but this is i think the reason because most of us like i have noticed people are like why why you want to get into phd and all that stuff and what do these researchers do and but what we see is the end result what we see uh, like for example i would like to talk about this of uh, medicine when we discover a medicine we just know that, okay we discovered a new antibiotic but no one sees the process of 10 to 15 years which the scientists have put uh, for this discovery and so all that goes unnoticed and what is the company which has manufactured that of course they have done the part but what about the years of research which took for the drug to come into the market exactly that's the one thing I like about science being a little bit different than um, engineering or technology is that um, science may not have results right away Mm -hmm. you may not see it it being used the next day or whatever, right? But it has a long-term effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we won't be talking here unless this way of understanding, you know, technology was discovered, <laughs> but the basis of technology is science, right? So a lot of those took years, if not decades, and, and you know, hundreds of years to, to be where it's today. So so that's the fun part about science is, is it's not right away, and that's kind of why people don't understand it mm-hmm. either, is that why does someone want to do, I don't know, bachelor's in physics? Like, how does that help, right? But people don't understand that that's kind of forms the basis, basis. of everything you're doing, <laughs> right? So, yeah. Uh, and in India, uh, very few people are uh, involved in science communication. So uh, what do you think? How can we improve it here in India? Or what can we do so that more people are engaged in science communication? So I think a lot um, has to do, I mean, currently 
a lot of people like you are actually trying to get that going, like the movement of, you know, people talking about it. But I think it's just the younger generation really needs to kind of get in there and just start doing it. Um, a lot of people don't understand that, that science communication may not have, you know, right of a direct effect that you see, but it has a profound effect on someone who may be listening, I don't know, for mm. for example, this podcast, or someone listening to someone say some random fact that, like, oh my god, that intrigued me, maybe I should go into biology or, you know, physics or chemistry. Um, it, it may not have a direct effect right away, but it has this long-term effect. Even if they don't get into sciences, you know, just being curious about your surroundings is very important. And so if youngsters just talk, start talking about what they're passionate about, mm-hmm. I mean, everyone has a different passion, right? So if someone is into, into biology, talk about biology. If someone is into chemistry, they talk about that. Mm-hmm. Someone into engineering, talk about that. Everyone has their own niche. Everyone has something that excites them. And if they just talk about something that excites them, that's more than enough to excite someone else. You know, if you're passionate about what you're talking, someone else is going to be equally passionate about listening mm-hmm. to you. Right. So uh, just people just need to start talking. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you also organize uh, many events and uh, workshops and yes, uh, centered on space. So would you like to tell us more about that? <laughs> yeah. So I <laughs> actually do a whole breadth of things. Um, I love my job in a way that uh, I actually got into it through podcast, uh, Western Worlds, was the first thing that I actually um, started doing as an official SciComm, was, you know, helping with the podcast. Um, and that was kind of my first foray into e- talking to people about what I like. Um, and then, because I guess I was very consistent with it, they gave me an option to go into classes and talk about, you know, whatever topic teacher wanted to talk about. So uh, that kind of came in second after I started my podcast was to, um, I wouldn't say my podcast, it's my, my center's <laughs> podcast, uh, but I've been working it for too long. <laughs> um, so I started into going to classes and, and talking to, to students why uh, space is important, mm-hmm. how, how intriguing, curious, and awesome it is. Um, and from there, um, uh, kind of dwelled more into organizing events. Um, I also worked at the observatory or on our campus mm-hmm. uh, where we were organizing school groups or, you know, just groups of people who want to bring in their friends and want to look through the telescope and talk to the astronomer and ask their questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so from there, um, so that was kind of my third uh, venture into, you know, talking to people. Um, and that kind of snowballed into doing a lot of global events. Um, so, for example, there is a yearly event called uh, International Observe the Moon Night, where everyone around the world on this one certain day looks at the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of talks about why moon is important, what do we know about the moon, and why we should know about the moon is kind of the next <laughs> celestial neighbor. Um, so that's kind of one of the many events then that I've done regularly um, um, for past four or five years. Um, and uh, recently, three years ago, um, I was tasked by my boss to start a space-themed summer camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was uh, to kind of get kids to know more about space through fun educational learning. Um, and so this was going to be over the summer, and it took me like a year to set everything up. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been three years. We're kind of reaching around 500 kids a summer. Oh, that's uh, Yeah, <laughs> in, in three years. Um, and, and so we do tons of these different things. We also go to conferences and talk mm-hmm. to scientists about what we do uh, and why education and outreach is important. Um, so there are many different aspects of my, my job, just podcasts, going to classrooms, 
also teacher training Mm -hmm. because a lot of teachers are not very um, strong at teaching space because they generally like, oh my God, there's so many numbers, Mm -hmm. there's so many things. Um, So we like to train them. Because they are teachers, they know how to talk to their kids, but we want to train them in space. So, so we develop these workshops that uh, teachers could use in their classrooms. Um, we train them, we put them on our website for free, so teachers could download them. Um, and, you know, if they, they feel like they still need us in southwestern Ontario, which is where I reside, mm-hmm. um, I st- I'm still open to going to classrooms, <laughs> still talking to their kids. Um, but, you know, we provide these kits where, where they can use in classrooms. So we kind of go in all spectrums. We, we talk to young kids. We talk to public. We talk to, um, you know, undergrads and grad students. Uh, but we also train teachers. So it's kind of a whole spectrum of every kind of person that you can think of. I, I think this is great because you're starting right from kids up to the teachers. Everyone who needs to know is knowing things according to their understanding and which is just great and I think we should have more of these events and conferences in India as well not only a space but uh, all other themes related because uh, for me my uh, life changed because I attended an event or a seminar and conferences about microbiology and I think they are not organized uh, here in India so I think this is what we need because then that then keeps you motivated and gives your spirit because uh, as you know many girls in india they drop out during their graduation or they hardly reach their post graduation the thing is they lose the motive uh, to continue their studies they have no motivation because we are like what we say is regular studies do the classes get your studies you get pass the exams and you're done yeah. so there's no one to constantly motivate you and i think these events uh, they motivate you and keep your spirit yeah um, i think they they when they see role models role this models, is where yes. you know you you have whether it's events or conferences, you see role models that you want to be like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hear about their struggles, you hear about their life. And, you know, they might would have been motivated at the same age as you yes. did or maybe not. But, you know, it's just where they are today and the path they took is maybe that's what's going to get you in there. So, yeah, it's hardly required. Is like, I think what is we require more, most yeah. here in India at least because I believe I've seen so many of my friends giving up their education during their graduation, which is so hard heartbreaking to see because uh, some of them were like parents don't allow girls to continue their education and some have the stories like what we have to do because they are told like they have to sit at their homes doing mm-hmm. stuff so they I haven't found their passion pa- yet passion <laughs> yet right and there's no one even to motivate them like you go ahead you do the things and do the stuff but events or when you meet someone who is so passionate when he tells you about your his work then I think you're motivated and to do this like you're doing it's amazing thank <laughs> you <laughs> Kids at such a young age, they'll, they'll see you and she's so excited and so passionate. I want to do that because I was like, oh, uh, I'm not much into it. Uh, let me tell you honestly, not much into space. I had that uh, thing when I was small, okay, stars and all. But later on, I found my passion in biology. But uh, listening to you and reading your uh, website and I was like, oh my God, this is just awesome. And I fell in love with that thing when I read about you so if I was younger maybe and I would have heard you then I don't know maybe I would have felt like okay I want to be an astrophysicist as well and I think that is what will help yeah I never had anyone um, as a role model when I was growing Mm -hmm. up so you know I completely I mean my mom was my role model even though she was a microbiologist she always encouraged me to look and ask more questions uh, but you know if I had someone like that I would be like you know always wanting to to be like that person so I'm hoping that you know people like you and everyone here who are doing this awesome job 
actually are able mm-hmm. to become these role models for these younger kids and you know they see you guys and they want to be you guys and they want to be like you so you know I'm hoping that whatever we are doing uh, is helping one person even if it helps one, one person, person it's all, all worth it for our, our time and effort so uh, would you like to share with us about your any upcoming events or workshops yeah. in India or in Canada? <laughs> so we have actually tons of planning that is going on right now. Um, so uh, we have an event, actually a couple of events coming up for the 100 Hours of Astronomy um, in this January where um, we are going to be talking to tons of people here in Ahmedabad mm-hmm. um, about uh, a, what an astronomer does, because a lot of people don't know, no. <laughs> uh, and um, also why space is important. Um, we'll do like few hands-on activities with them uh, to kind of motivate them on, you know, uh, what you could do with the household stuff mm-hmm. you have. Um, in Canada, we have tons of stuff lined up. We I'm running the camps again at two different locations again this summer. So as soon as I get back to Canada, I'll be all into prepping <laughs> for that. Um, I'm also running an event. Um, on International um, Day of Girls and Women in Astronomy or in mm-hmm. Sciences in general, which is February 11th. Um, I'll be running an event at the observatory talking about women in space or in women mm-hmm. in astronomy. Um, and, uh, and then we have our classroom workshops that we have lined up. Um, and we also recently launched our Space Matters campaign in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, which is a campaign um, to create awareness about how important space is in our everyday life, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, and it is, uh, it is a campaign um, to, to bring the awareness to, to Canadians, but also everyone around the world, because kind of same applications apply everywhere. Um, and especially to get the government to understand why they should be funding basic sciences and especially space to, to keep the innovations and research going. That's great. So many events coming up and we'd love to listen about it on our social media. Definitely. I would love to keep you guys updated <laughs> with that. So uh, who are your favorite psychomers? Like For me, you and Sonal are my favorite, but for you... <laughs> oh my God, I have tons. I'm going to uh, kind of concentrate on the women of color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, we recently started, me and some of my friends started a uh, women of color in STEAM um, Canada chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so I was kind of want to highlight all the women of color that I know <laughs> uh, who are into, into you know, into SciComm and really good. Uh, first person who comes to my mind is Samantha Yamin. Um, she is a PhD student at University of Toronto. Uh, she's big on Instagram. You should guys follow her. Uh, Parsha from her Sim story. Um, Sonal, definitely. Um, and we have uh, Bhairavi Shankar, who is a planetary scientist based in Canada. Uh, Rupali Chaudhary, who runs Lotus STEM. Um, that's an organization um, basically... Uh, concentrating on South Asians mm-hmm. uh, when it's talking about STEM and, and showcasing them how awesome STEM careers could be. Um, we have Krishana Shankar. Um, she is also based in Canada. A lot of my <laughs> sci-commers are based in Canada and North America. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of space ones, I would say, are Emily Calendrilli. You probably know her very well. Um, and um, we have Tanya Harrison. Uh, she's yeah. also one of the really awesome sci-commers. She's also from Western. <laughs> um, and, and then people like you. Uh, we also oh have. <laughs> yeah, I love. I would love to have more uh, people from South Asia to be highlighted. Um, because I think there are a lot of South Asians uh, who can be part of this awesome community and can should and should share a lot of their passion with everyone else. But these are the first few people that are coming to my mind right now. <laughs>
Now let's take a break. Now here's a word from our gifting partner, the SoulStore.com. The Soul Store has incredibly cool collection of t-shirts, hoodies, and boxers for men and women of your favorite superheroes, films, cartoons, and many more. They have really cool collection of accessories like backpacks, badges, mobile covers, mugs, and notebooks. Check the SoulStore.com today. You're definitely going to love it. And don't forget to use our code to get discount on your shopping. The codes are available in the description. And we are back. And uh, so, Parshati, I have questions for you, which uh, might sound stupid, <laughs> but I'm going to ask anyways because because I think you're the best person uh, who can answer my questions. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, like, why Pluto is no longer considered a planet? <laughs> I get this question a lot. I love this question. <laughs> so, um, there is uh, there's a definition for what planets are. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be round. Um, they have uh, to go around the sun, which is kind of mm-hmm. for everything that's in the solar system. Um, but they also have to be round. So our Earth is round. All the planets are round. Uh, the, third def- the third part of the definition is that all planets have to have cleared their neighborhood, which means when they're going around the sun, they are the biggest object in their path around the sun. Okay. So if you look at the Earth's sun, uh, sorry, Earth and Moon system, Moon is way smaller than Earth is. Mm-hmm. When we talk about Pluto, um, uh, first of all, Pluto has a very eccentric, strange orbit where it goes above the plane of orbit and below. Um, so while all the rest of the planets kind of go around in the same plane, mm-hmm. uh, so that's first weird thing. Um, second weird thing, it's also not cleared its neighborhood. So um, you may know Pluto has moons, mm-hmm. lots of them. Lots Sharon of is almost like, it's almost the size. Um, so technically, it's part of a Kuiper belt, um, and it has not cleared its neighborhood when it's going around uh, around the sun. So that kind of makes it different than, um, than uh, the planets that we define as. Ceres is another example. It's in the asteroid belt, which exists between Jupiter and Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Mars and Jupiter. Um, and Ceres is part of these... Um, orbit around the sun where it has hundreds and thousands of asteroids that are going around with it around the sun. Mm-hmm. So again, it has not cleared its neighborhood. It has a lot of junk around it that makes it not, um, you know, the main thing that's going around um, the sun and its orbit. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes it not follow the definition, what we have defined for a planet. Okay. That's why we put them in a different category mm-hmm. called dwarf planets. But uh, don't you think we took a uh, longer to come to this decision? Uh, does it have anything to do with the scientific development and advancement in technology? So we have actually found tons of these dwarf planets now. Mm-hmm. So Ceres being one of the many, Pluto, uh, and then there are tons Humea, Makemake. There are all these other that we have found that follow kind of the dwarf planet category definition than more than planets. So we're finding more and more of these nowadays, thanks to the newer technology, uh, you know, uh, telescopes and all the, the, the way we process the data. Um, so you can imagine just broadening the category does not make sense. Rather, having a different category would make sense. So instead of just having a larger definition to form, to put all of these new found objects into to planet, it's, it's an ideal. It's mm-hmm. better to create a separate category because we know there are more than one 
now. <laughs> we know hundreds of them mm-hmm. now, so it's, it's better to put them in a separate category that can go as dwarf planets. So and now our, plan- our solar system has planets, dwarf planets, asteroids, and comets and other things. Okay. And uh, so science development in science and technology uh, plays a major role in every field. So uh, which major invention has revolutionized the field of uh, space science and technology, which is the biggest invention so far? Do, what do you think? Wow, there are tons. <laughs> I'm going to pick one I think is going to be adaptive optics. So this mm-hmm. is where uh, you have a technology that's um, basically helping you uh, to look at the images of outer space that you're seeing finer and better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, I guess I'm putting a second one as like data processing is, is yeah, part of that. <laughs> it's a lot of science is data processing. So, um, you know, data, how we process data, the mm-hmm. amount of computer time, the amount of computer, uh, f- like the supercomputers and stuff that we have within your technology allow us to to model things, to, to be able to gather gigabytes and, you know, terabytes of data at night and be able to process that. Um, so I would say those two things are kind of uh, what's, helping the development and kind of we're able to learn more things faster than we were able to, let's say, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. Data computation has played a major role in all the fields. Right? Yeah, something so that I would want listeners to know is a lot of astronomy is actually not looking at the sky, it's actually looking at your computer. <laughs> <laughs> and on, on like, you know, modeling mm-hmm. and, and processing the data, that's what most of the sciences is all about now because we have so much data so that much. we need to, to process it. Uh, what is your take on multiverse? Oh, <laughs> a lot of people ask me this. Um, we haven't found um, evidence for mm-hmm. it, so I'm just going to wait around <laughs> to make up my mind on it. Um, I mean, obviously, there are great science science minds behind mm-hmm. who are working you know, towards these theories. Um, but I'm someone who, you know, would like to have evidence before I make up my mind on something. Uh, so... I don't know, maybe in the next decade or two, I would know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what do you think, black, do black holes exist? So black holes do exist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, luckily or unluckily, there is one right at the heart of our Milky Way galaxy, mm-hmm. and it's at the heart of most of the big galaxies that you see around. Um, and it's a very, very interesting field of, uh, of astronomy, science in general, um, because they are mysterious and we love mysteries right (laughs) everyone loves mysteries it's very hard for a human to not know something of not know why the thing is happening right so we have tons of science that is going around why why are the black holes the way they are Mm -hmm. what are they (laughs) that's like the biggest question right they're black holes they uh, they do things that we we don't see among stars and other things that we see in the universe so um they do exist and and they're really pretty interesting Mm -hmm stuff we uh, cannot uh, see dna but we can quantitatively measure it and now you can do stuff where you can uh, i did the genome as well but about your field what i find interesting is you have to look at something when you're down here at earth you mm-hmm. just can't go there because we are like, okay i've grown muscles i'll check them and i'll take them from my yes. <laughs> you can't do that okay i'll go and check that so this is what i find interesting about your field is like you have to deduce and you have you have to apply so much of your experience and your knowledge with uh, time you know, yeah I'm... and it's one of the 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 best part about studying astronomy is that um 
universe is huge. There are tons of examples around for you. I mean, not always, but a lot of the time. I mean, you know, the kinds of stars that I was studying, oh, there are tons of them around, right? Mm-hmm. So you are able to kind of do this pick and choose thing where you can, you know, um, kind of look at all these different objects that you are seeing and, and kind of understand what they're doing at each different mm-hmm. stage. Um, but, uh, you know, not always do you have that option. For example, black holes, you cannot really see the black holes. You have to deduce everything you're seeing Mm -hmm. by a moments of the stars around it or material around it or the kind of emission it's giving out because of the material that's trying to go into the black hole. Um, So you're inferring a lot of things. and and obviously, like we would love to go and you know touch things, <laughs> go closer and look at things, but that's not always the case unless you are studying the moon or maybe soon when we have material back from you know comets and asteroids, maybe those. Um, but other than that, unless we send humans, we have the technology to send humans to all these different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just interesting how we have advanced so much in this uh, field just by sitting here and looking. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what I personally find very much, uh, like, I'm amazed because uh, you just have to look at the things and, like, you have to set, you have to measure the intensities and all that. But at the same time, after measuring, deducing something and you have to provide evidence, then only people will believe you. So you have to deduce and then you have to provide an evidence, which is difficult because, like I said, you just can't go there. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is where uh, you, you're talent lies I think it's yeah it's a lot of training (laughs) it's a lot of training and and a lot of talking to other scientists because uh, a lot of the things that a lot of people do I don't know in mathematics and statistics and Mm -hmm. biology there are lots of these different methods that we try and tend and to apply to to doing astronomy so you know it's a lot of talking to other people uh, and and a lot of thinking about what it could be when you cannot really be there Mm -hmm. and see it so yeah, it's a lot of thinking, which is great. <laughs> uh, so, okay, my next question might sound a bit absurd, but uh, see, being a biologist, what I feel, this Earth is a system. For me, Earth is our system. So, uh, like, we have, uh, like, successfully <laughs> polluted our systems and, like, the, all these problems which are, we are facing right now, like global warming, scarcity of resources, I feel like they are, like, these tumors which are trying to degrade our Earth. But... What do you think now? We are investing so much on uh, research in space. We are planning to shift to the different planets. So do you think that uh, investing in uh, other, shifting to other planets or do, doing something like that, don't you think we should focus more on uh, like improving the conditions on Earth? So are we overdoing it or what do you think? It is still underrepresented. We should be even doing more. It's uh, a very good question. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the questions that... A lot of people, when they think about why are we investing in space, mm-hmm. if you are talking to a government representative, that's one of the questions you will get is, why should we put more money in here? Um, but there are tons of different things that, again, as I mentioned, a lot of things that people do on an everyday basis mm-hmm. is a result of research in space science and technology that people don't think about. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a few examples. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you may know that on the International Space Station, they recycle all the liquid waste of all the astronauts. Mm -hmm. Um, And that purification system that they had developed is enough that all the liquid waste of the human body is purified enough that they are able to convert it to drinking water that astronauts are then able to drink. Because water is super heavy, Mm -hmm. to send something to space costs a lot of money. Um, So they came up with this purification Mm -hmm. system. 
This purification system is now actually being used all over the world to provide people with these purification systems um, in poor countries, third world countries. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was initially researched as a question for astronauts to have clean drinking water, but now the technology is being applied everywhere else. Uh, something that may apply to everyone who's listening is using camera on your cell phone. Mm-hmm. So um, when initially they were sending all these spacecraft to other planets, they certainly cannot send... I mean, you guys may have seen pictures of these giant cameras that mm-hmm. the astronauts yeah. had were carrying to Moon, mm-hmm. and they cannot send those things to Mars and other places in the solar system. A lot of weight, again, that costs money. So they had to... Um, basically uh, find a way to miniaturize the cameras. And so they had to develop these chips that are now actually one and two cameras from what I read last, um, actually use those same kinds of chips in your cell phone. So, you know, that technology, I mean, I say to people, you cannot take a selfie without thinking where that (laughs) camera came from. (laughs) It was initially planned for Mars, you know, and now it's in your cell phone. So you are using technologies that are derived from these things and uh, something other a lot of people wear Fitbits I wear my Fitbit too Uh, and that was initially designed so that they could keep track of astronauts health while they are um, you know doing whatever activity that they're doing either up in space or here uh, to monitor their health on a constant basis Um, and now it's been commercialized Mm -hmm. to be used by everyone to track their you know everyday number of steps you take or your health or your um, heart rate so there are direct applications so I would say uh, even though just like basic sciences they don't they're not apparent right away but they are tons of them Um, if uh, listeners are interested they could go to the website um, NASA's website called spinoff um, they have more than 2,000 patents of stuff that they have initially developed for space exploration mm-hmm. now being adapted um, all over the world in very, many different fields. Uh, if they want to check that out, there's a huge list of these things that we use on an everyday basis that we don't even realize was initially built for space exploration. Mm-hmm. So I think investment in space exploration is equally important because mm-hmm. we need to understand when the next star is going to blow up we need to know how stars actually form and die, right, in order to say that. Um, but then if we are looking that in maybe 100 or 200 years, this planet may not be the right place to live, mm-hmm. when we find another place that is going to be suitable, A, we're going to need the research that we're doing right now, but then we're also going to need the technology to transport there. So it would have to be a continuous research uh, and development from here to whenever we move to another planet, or if we do, um, to have that knowledge, to be able to do that. So, you know, investment of space, I think it never goes uh, wrong in any ways. Um, uh, People just don't realize how, on everyday basis, one thing that, you know, you probably used to get here today was GPS, right? (laughs) People don't think about it. Your GPS will not work if we didn't have satellites, and if we did not know the right physics, we would not be able to hold the satellites where they are today. Right? So that is, again, going back to the basic physics uh, and basic technology of actually being able to build a satellite and put it up there. So those simple things, we need them on an everyday basis, and, and we have no other option but to invest. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, given our you know, human's track record in the past, all, a lot of those technologies have now been used by us. Um, and, and what I mean by layman uh, people and uh, 
when we do, it's kind of benefit to all of us. So I think it's required. Uh, like as you said, much of the research which is done and applications go unnoticed, uh, which are done in the field of uh, space science and technology. And like uh, you mentioned, of course we are using it on a daily basis, but we haven't ever thought that this was the outcome of the research which was done in this field. But that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for making us aware. <laughs> oh, no worries. I, I think it's very, I, I find it, I have these really few examples that, I mean, there are tons that I've researched about, but these are the few ones that we use so much on daily basis that, you know, I always like to point people out that, hey, GPS, hey, your cell phone camera. <laughs> you know, those are simple things that we, we don't think about. So uh, now, just now you mentioned about moving to other planets. And so uh, even Elon Musk has said that he's, uh, they are building interplanetary uh, ships uh, which will do visits maybe uh, in the mid of this uh, year. So uh, what do you think about it? How will this work? <laughs> I am... Um... <laughs> I don't know how to put that <laughs> in a correct way. Um, uh, without sounding offensive. I'm, uh, I would say... Uh, it's, it's very optimistic that we're thinking about doing this. Mm -hmm. um, however, I think we still need to do a lot of research before we are able to send humans to, to Mars or, you know, Moon, we have sent them there before. But if you're thinking of having a colony or colonizing other, other planets, um, there's a lot of things that you need to think about how our human body reacts to space over a long period of time, mm -hmm. which we're still trying to understand what the experiments that we do at the International Space Station. Um, but as you can imagine, it's still in the bub Earth's bubble, right? We're only like 400 kilometers that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's not very far. When you leave Earth's bubble, you are uh, prone to radiation from the sun. How does that affect our body? We know here we are, you know, harmful UV radiation. We have to be aware of cancer, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you can just imagine over um, a three or five year mission that these astronauts are going to take, a lot um, is going to go through psychologically, mm -hmm. physically, and mentally for them. And we need to be prepared for that. And I think for that, there is research being conducted on very many different scales here on Earth, on the International Space Station. But I think we're still not at that point um, where it would be okay to tell someone, hey, you're going to this place, you're going to be safe and sound, mm -hmm. this is what you're going to be doing, you're going to be returning on this day like they, they do for the astronauts to International Space Station. Um, I think we're still a few decades away from that. Mm -hmm. um, that's my opinion. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, there are tons of these private uh, companies as well as government agencies that are working uh, to make newer technologies for these astronauts to be there safely. But there's tons of research that still needs to be done on how we protect them, how we provide them with food that's going to last for so mm -hmm. long, or how are they able to grow food um, that is going to be sustainable, um, nutritious, mm -hmm. um, provide them with enough material for the five years or whatever that term be. Um, those simple kinds of questions they're still researching on. So I don't think we're at that point where we can send, but I think 2050, 2060, I feel like that might be the time where, where we might be going. We still need a few years of mm -hmm. research. Uh, and why are we focusing all our attention on Mars? Like, what is so specific about this planet? So, um, one uh, important thing to note for Earth, um, Venus, and Mars is that they form, fall into this, what we call the habitable zone. Mm -hmm. This is the area from the sun where you can find liquid water. Um, 
we know that liquid water is important for all life forms and <laughs> required for all life forms. Um, and, uh, and we know that Venus is on the close edge of this um, uh, habitable zone, mm-hmm. not a very habitable place to live. Earth, great, we're here. But when we want to look at the next place to go, the best place is Mars because A, it's in the habitable zone. Mm-hmm. B, the temperature variations aren't that bad. Um, plus 20 to like minus 80. Mm-hmm. Like that's not a bad, you know, range. I mean, we can survive. We can build domes and stuff like that. Um, the atmosphere is thin, mm-hmm. even though um, it has carbon um, dioxide mostly. But we could find ways to create oxygen, which is what we need. Mm-hmm. know we need. Um We've also put a lot of research into Mars um, compared to other planets because we know um, now that there's past evidence of water flowing on Mars. Um, so also trying to understand why there is not any more. Can we still make it that way? So mm-hmm. kind of terraforming um, is one of the ideas people are floating. Um, so kind of Mars becomes an ideal spot other than Earth that you want to go, um, especially with the global warming and you know, in 4 billion years of water, <laughs> the sun is going to swell and Earth is not going to be the right place. I guess Mars is going to be the next place, best place to go and then beyond and beyond. But um, the ideal candidate, if you look at all the planets in our solar system, Mars kind of fits the bill where, hey, we can probably jurig things and make domes and, and find ways to create water and find ways to, uh, to make the air, you know, breathable or convert it in a way that in the domes you're able to breathe um, oxygen. So that makes it an ideal mm-hmm. spot. So, but uh, the SpaceX uh, mission is also to plant seeds uh, to uh, like grow human colonies there. So, so taking into consideration all the conditions you have mentioned, is it possible right now, at least like you said, it will take decades, but then even after decades, is it possible to grow a human colony there? Um, it's a very ambitious plan <laughs> because um, you can imagine if you want to set up a village here, there are tons of things you need. Mm-hmm. You need, a, obviously, humans, but you also need um, water, food, place for them to live. And obviously, when you're going to be Mars, you're going to be doing some science. You're not just going to be hanging around. So laboratories mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, all of those things individually, um, all we have sent till now are rovers and landers. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not sent any humans <laughs> to Mars. Um we have sent humans to the moon, um, so we know a bit of what could be done. Um, but certainly, uh, it's a long process in getting all of these different um, things that I mentioned um, in order to establish an entire colony. Mm-hmm. Um, colony means long-term living there, yes. um, not supporting relying. Needs. Yeah, supporting your own needs, not relying on Earth to send you water <laughs> or food <laughs> or whatever. Right, um, that itself. Is gonna gonna take a long time because right now, if you look at Mars, it's not hospitable mm-hmm. by itself. It's not like I go to Hawaii and plant my tent there. <laughs> it's not like I can breathe. Uh, I can go fetch fruits or anything like that. Everything will have to be built from scratch. So that would mean the first set of people that would go there will have to live in a maybe tin can size mm-hmm. place. Start with slowly building. Um, things that will start making, I guess, homes or, you know, even just start making a water tank, finding a way to make water, mm-hmm. all of those things. It's, it's a long, long-term process. So, you know, um, it's very ambitious. 
great to Elon Musk. He has the money, he has the power. He has a you know team of people who are able to to do that. Um, and I mean, given what he has done in past with mm-hmm. all um, all of the rockets that he has, you know, he imagined he did it. Um, I'm in no doubt that they'll be able to do it. It's just that it's going to take some time um, because there are lots of different aspects of, of having a human colony rather than just visiting. Mm-hmm. Visiting might be, could be done in a few, I would say maybe a decade or two. Uh, we have been to the moon. We know how things work. Mm-hmm. Um, but colonization is a little bit a longer term structured mm-hmm. plan that needs to happen. Because it's going to take us years to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, what do you think? Do aliens exist? That's my favorite question. <laughs> Always. Um, and this might be a really, might be a really weird answer because you're a microbiologist. <laughs> talking to a biologist is different than talking to public about this. Um, so, as I mentioned before, all life requires water. Mm-hmm. So, we know in the solar system, around other um, planets, around other stars... Between stars, we know that we have found material that can make water. There's water, um, other places, um, all the material that makes life, um, carbon, silicon, iron, all those materials are available in space, okay? So all you need is this right planet at the right spot from its star that can hold liquid water, um, and that's really it, right? Because carbon and all the material that is required is there. We have found amino acids in space that makes us, right? Um, So I think it's very probable to have microbial life because Mm -hmm. it's very easy to make single cellular organism Mm -hmm. than it is to make complex human-like. Yeah. So I think it would be very common to have, if you find a planet that probably has liquid water, maybe under the ocean, maybe whatnot, there might be easy ways for it to form a single Mm -hmm. cell organism. Whether we're going to have intelligent beings, that's a really good question. I don't know about it. <laughs> I don't like to say yes or no to that question because um, it's a complex process. Take millions of years of evolution um, and material. Uh, so I wouldn't say certainly yes, but I wouldn't say certainly no either. Because if it has taken us years to be where we are today... Maybe there is some other planet and I don't know about around another mm-hmm. star in a distant galaxy that kind of had similar conditions. And you know, the other thing that you have to think about is um, be our carbon based life. Carbon is available mm-hmm. everywhere, it's like the Casanova of chemistry <laughs> of all the elements. <laughs> um, but there might be conditions where you could have maybe silicon based mm-hmm. life or nitrogen based life, but we don't know what that would look like. The only example we have is we, <laughs> right? So even if we are going to places like Mars, Europa, Ganymede, all these different um, places in the solar system itself, what are we looking for? Are we looking for the same mm, single-celled organism that we see here on Earth? Or is it going to be different? Because material around them would be different, conditions would be different, maybe their evolution would be different. So that's kind of the thing. Maybe even intelligent beings exist, but maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know, they evolved in a way that we cannot see them or we cannot recognize that that's an intelligent being. So our definition of an intelligent being or an alien is very much like us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, which in itself is, I guess, a flawed 
understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Because it could happen in very many different ways. We just know it one way. Um, so what are we going to look? How are we going to look? That's another thing that kind of, you know, I always like to think and talk about is because that's a different perspective that we, there might be life that we don't know is life. And through uh, movies and books, we have imagined uh, various forms of aliens. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> various <laughs> colored green and all that stuff. Yeah, which, on, and the funny thing is they're all scary for some strange yeah. reason, except maybe uh, the Contact uh, movie. That was the only one where the alien was kind of nice and cute looking. Um, that's the only one that I can think of. <laughs> um, but most of the time they're shown as a scary yeah. being. Weird people. Exactly. Not, in no way resembling us. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's just a human nature of you know, protecting ourselves mm-hmm. from, from, from whatever we don't know about. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I know there might be mm-hmm. green aliens, but who knows? <laughs> I mean, that's our imagination, but that may or may not be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, movies like uh, Star Trek and Star Wars, they have always shown uh, robots and AI playing a major role in space science and technology. So what do you think is the role of AI right now and in future in uh, astronomy? I think um, robots are great because we have tons floating mm-hmm. around the solar system right now. Um, they do things autonomously, right? Um, and we are building the technology of AI um, to help us in many ways, not only in space. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, the better technology, the better evolving technology, which is you know what we are working on right now, I think is going to be beneficial, as long as we don't create something that kills us, <laughs> which is what a lot of people are worried about, right? <laughs> um, so I, I think when we look at the future, robots are more likely actually to go on Mars and build mm-hmm. things for us before we get there than us going there and building things. Mm-hmm. Um, just with the, the, the AI and, and the robotic technology that's evolving right now. So I think there's a major role for them to play. Um, obviously, people are working towards how ethically, I guess, efficiently mm-hmm. have used them. Um, and, um, and, you know how and which area they will be useful mm-hmm. in. So we know that robots right now are great to send something that's distant, far away, would you know, do things for us, that is taking picture, taking samples, mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but certainly does not replace humans because we have sense of touch, we have sense of smell, mm-hmm. we have sense of, you know, mm-hmm. vision, we have, we can think, make decisions, even though no matter how much we code and make things, um, it's still different than humans. So um, they cannot replace humans, I think, but they can try and match as much as we would think we would want to go and do it someplace, replace us before we get there, I guess, in that way. That, so. that, that would be a great thing to do because before sending humans, I think robots would be a better option. Definitely. And I mean, currently rovers are doing mm-hmm. a lot of that job, you know, um, when we talk about going to Mars or even just taking pictures of asteroids and Kuiper Belt objects mm-hmm. and comets, right? You wouldn't want to go on a mission to this comet that's going around the sun <laughs> you would want to send a robot to that so they're already doing a marvelous job and it's just how the technology is going to evolve it, and it, that's going to decide on what our needs are going to be at that time and how we can utilize those investment so 
Parashati, so if you want to uh, invent something or at least give an idea for some new technology which is not existing, but if discovered would uh, like add so, so much great to our knowledge, so what would it be? What do you think would you want Two to things. do? Two things. <laughs> time travel. Well, we do time travel in a way that when we look at stars there in past. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would want to travel at the speed of light or faster. So we would want to come up with a technology to... Maybe travel faster than a speed of light. Mm-hmm. So come up with a space drive that could do that. I know like it's very hard to look at physics and look at what we have right now around. But that's kind of a dream if someday mm-hmm. we're able to travel to the next star and it only takes us like, let's say if we travel at the speed of light, four years to get there, you know. <laughs> that's not a lot in a human years. But, um, you know, that would be like a dream mm-hmm thing is to travel at the speed of light and be able to explore and be that Star Trek generation <laughs> to be able to zoom past, let's go to the next planet or next moon or, you know, next system. I think that would be... <laughs> Engage. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, travel at warp speed. <laughs> but yeah, that would be, I think, something that mm-hmm. I hope happens in my timeline time, because I want to see it. <laughs> before I die um but you know that's kind of something that would excite mm-hmm. almost everyone Time traveling yeah <laughs> yeah um or just traveling at the speed of light to mm-hmm. different places outside the solar system or even just in the solar system I mean just taking a vacation to Jupiter or I don't know Saturn would be fun <laughs> uh if not an astrophysicist then what do you see yourself doing oh my god I've thought about this so much <laughs> um it's kind of funny because um, in the last few years, I've gone from researching these awesome stars to now kind of full-time being dedicated to doing SciComm. Um, I would have, if not an astronomer, would have loved to be a teacher because I get excited about things and I want to share it with people. Um, it was different in my childhood, though. I wanted to be a detective. <laughs> some of my talks are still named stellar detective because i like i wanted to be detective when i watched like csi and stuff like that um and a fashion designer when i was young that's what i wanted to be um but right now realistically <laughs> i if i had to change my profession which i think i kind of have um educator is kind of mm-hmm. what i would want to are kind of Educate. detective. Yeah. <laughs> That's of the galaxy. Exactly. <laughs> detective of the galaxy. And actually, I recently gave a talk. Um, um, I, did, I did soapbox science last year. Um, mm-hmm. And I had to come up with a new way of gaining people's attention. Could be 10 minutes, could be 5 minutes, could be 2 minutes of people's attention while they were in a crowded public place. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how can you get someone interested in space? And I came up with this topic of stellar detective. And I connected everything to how a detective yeah. would do. So, you know, how they get fingerprints. How do we get fingerprints of the star? We look at the light. <laughs> how do you detect things? Well, you inspect <laughs> the room of <laughs> the murder. You know, so I connected everything back to what, you know, people want. And, like, truly, it's, it's a detective work. Everything mm-hmm. you do. You look for clues. You look for evidence, you connect the dots from all the evidence and all the clues and whatever information you have. As an astronomer, that's more evident than any other sciences because you're literally sitting here and doing that without actually being able to touch anything. So, you know, in a, in a murder, you cannot touch a body. But it's kind of the same thing. You're not able to touch anything, but you're still using your detective skills. 
So, uh, if you could take one thing to you on an island, what would it be and uh, why? Oh, boy. Um, my camera. Because <laughs> I, I know island would have a really good night sky. <laughs> Sorry, this is all comes back to restaurant all the time. Um, but really great night sky. So, I would want to take my, my camera and I guess it should come with a tripod. <laughs> so, I can take really nice, uh, awesome. Nice exactly. <laughs> really nice, uh, nice um night sky shots um, you know, with my camera. Yeah, that's really all I would need. I would just take pictures day and night. <laughs> no food, no work. No. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I need stars. Yeah. Okay, so uh, apart from your friends and family, uh, which three people would you like to have dinner with? Ooh. Uh, maybe three famous personalities. Famous celebrities. You might say physicist. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um... Okay, um, I think this is one that everyone says, Einstein. Mm-hmm. I just want to really figure him out. He's really cool. Like his theories, I really want to learn it from him. <laughs> um, Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. I think he's a really, he was a really interesting person. I wish I had gotten to know him. Um, uh, last but not the least, very interesting Elon Musk. <laughs> we want to know, you know, like a little bit more about his ambitious plans and... Uh, and the way he runs things and things like that. So, yeah. Do you think that uh, privatization has benefited astronomy? Yes, in many ways, because it gears um, innovation in many ways. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, you know, now with better rockets, um, we can send you know, more better um, technology stuff into space. Telescopes. <laughs> I like telescopes. Um, so yeah, so technology in many ways also pushes uh, a lot of research because uh, you know if you want to build a heavier, bigger rocket, yes, it's a private industry, but like all the basics comes from yeah, from yeah. sciences and technology and engineering and math, right? Um, so it's kind of back and forth. Private industry wants to do things that are you know, normal governmental agency and scientists are looking at. For example, if you're looking at asteroids, we're already studying them, what they're made of, the private industry that's using that information, wanting to mine them. But then at the same time, scientists could then use that research of whatever they're trying to mine. How can we use that or how useful that would be if it was here on Earth, et cetera, et cetera. So it kind of goes back and forth. Um, It's a very, I guess... um, interesting situation that we didn't have that this few decades ago where we didn't have private industry foring into space domain that much um now with so many industries certainly has gotten to a point where we are building technology passing it on you know doing research taking information passing it on the other way kind of thing so um it's just gonna get better (laughs) it's just gonna get bigger given more industries are popping up now which is your favorite, DC or Marvel? Ooh, hmm. <laughs> both. <laughs> Can I say both? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, both. I would go with uh, both. Any favorite character? I don't like... I try not to choose favorite because each of them have their uh-huh. unique Different. thing, yeah. right? She always um, said it, Flash. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't want to... Like, I, I feel like uh, when you're looking... You know, as a story or as a person or someone, everyone comes from different mm-hmm. perspective. They look at different qualities in, in a person or in a character. So I don't 
like to choose a favorite a lot of the times even when you said you know pick three people I'm like mm. <laughs> and I realized I did not pick any woman <laughs> you know like it's it's just those things like I don't like to pick favorites mm-hmm. a lot of the time um when it comes to characters or people just because we can talk about different things about different people and characters mm-hmm. so yeah so uh would you like to tell anything to our listeners who would be interested in your career field yeah um People who may want to pursue astronomy in general, not astrophysics, but maybe planetary mm-hmm. science, cosmology, um, galactic astronomy. Um, I would say be curious, ask a lot of questions, be passionate, um, never give up. <laughs> if you're persistent, you will annoy people, but they will know you're annoying them for the right reasons. <laughs> I was very persistent when I wanted to go, uh, so they kind of helped me, so you know, I would say be persistent, be passionate, be curious. And if you particularly want to go in astronomy, um, there are a lot of um, skills that they look for in astronomy. Um, if you're, you know, maybe in high school or an undergrad and looking to, you know, have those skills when you're going into this field, um, I would say computational fields are super, like computational skills are super important. So knowing how to code, um, data processing, image processing, um, also talking, <laughs> you know, and, and translating your knowledge um, to other people. Um, I think those are some of the important things. Mm-hmm. I guess some of them are very general, could apply to a lot of them, but when you're looking for astronomy, a lot of that is computational um, astronomy. Yeah. For young girls in India, hmm. Um, I would say look... astronomy... In India, at least, uh, uh, girls very few girls. Yeah. It's a geeky subject. Yeah. Boys are good for this <laughs> Yeah, I have, it, actually, it's very interesting because a lot of people, when I was, mm-hmm. like, you know, geeking out in space, a lot yeah, of people yeah. were talking about that. And like, oh, you know, why, why astronomy? Why that? Mm-hmm. I would say for young girls, just be passionate, be persistent, be curious. Just, like, ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Find the right people to ask questions. So, you know, reach out to a lot of people on social media. They are, like, you know, in day and age, almost... I think all teenagers and young people have phones. Most of the people have like Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter. Um, ask people questions. Most of the science commerce are actually very um, happy to answer questions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you are um, looking for, for advice or if you're looking for help, and if you, or even if it's just a simple <clears throat> question about, hey, I don't understand this thing that's written in a book or something like that. Um, Feel free to reach out. A lot of people um, like to talk about what they do um, and, and, you know, would want to tell you what they do. Yeah. Uh, so asking questions mm-hmm. and, you know, having role models is important. So look up people on Google, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who are astronomers in your field or who are, you know, um, astrobiologists in your field, field that you like. Um, all of those find people that you think you may want to be one day. Um, uh, and, and, you know, just look up to them and ask questions mm-hmm. and be curious. Having said that, of course, you also must have faced this thing, like you're a girl going into astronomy. So how did you deal with this? Oh, a very mm-hmm. interesting story behind that. <laughs> if I have time, I will tell you. <laughs> so um, when I was in uh, grade 12, I decided I want to study astronomy. Um, I knew that right after grade 12, I didn't do well in my entrance exams. Um, so someone had suggested me that I go abroad, and I wanted to. I was 
like 18, 19 year olds old. <laughs> and you know, in, in India, mm-hmm. uh, parents are like, oh my God, sending a girl yeah, alone. And this was like 12 years ago, 12, 14 years ago when I, you know, was in grade 12. So you can imagine my parents are like, no, 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 you're not going anywhere, <laughs> you know, not by yourself and uh, go after your graduation or go after your master's. Um, but I was very persistent that I want to do this and I want to do it from scratch because Right now, I think this is what it's going to look like. I think this is what I'm going to be doing as an astronomer, mm-hmm. but I don't know. So maybe if I start from bachelor's, then I will have the right base yeah. to know if I'm going to do this. Um, and I even did my master's for the same reason, because, you know, I could have applied for a direct PhD after my bachelor's. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm s- like, I love astronomy. It's great. Awesome to learn about all this stuff. But do I really want to do this for my life? Um, so, you know, I... Um, my my parents, my mom was was hesitant in the start because she was more worried about my safety than anything else. She is super supportive in everything I do. She used to actually even come with me to these, you know, little events and stuff like that that would happen. Um, my dad and my uncle were not <laughs> supportive at all. They're like, oh, you know what? Like, you have enough marks to get into a computer engineering, just take that. And then, you know, after engineering, do whatever you want. And, and like, you know, and my uncle was more worried about me doing engineering so that I can get the right guy when <laughs> you get married. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't care. I'm not going to do that. And I actually went on a couple day hunger strike because I'm like, I'm not going to eat if I'm not going to get where I'm gonna <laughs> what I want to do. Um, but because I wanted to go abroad, obviously, there's a whole process of applying visas mm-hmm. and all of that that needs to be done. Also, research on where you want to go. Um, so that the entire process took me two years. Um, uh, so I took admission in BSc physics because I said, I don't want to go into engineering. Like, I don't want to pursue engineering. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I want to do astronomy, I want to start from, like, you will go into physics, right? So I, I went into physics and math. I took two years. Um, and actually, the start of my third year, which would have been my graduating mm-hmm. year, I, I actually transferred to University of Toronto. Um, so, you know, I, I had to struggle. And, and it took years for my family to be convinced that I should be doing that. My mom was kind of very supportive in that time. And my parent was, my dad was reluctantly okay, okay. Um, but the rest of my family was not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I'm glad that my mom was supporting mm-hmm. when she knew that she's not going to leave this. She's very stubborn about what she wants to do and, and you know, just let her do what she wants to. Um, so I had to struggle, but I was just, you know, very, very stubborn about it and very persistent. And I'm glad it worked out because it would have been a disaster if, it, if I would have gone there. Like After bachelor's, wouldn't have gone anywhere. Be like, all right, you saw, you tried, <laughs> you know. Um, I was, I think I, I was annoying enough to a lot of people that I got into places where I would normally would not have um, because I was just very persistent with people saying, this is what I want to do. Can you help me? <laughs> you know, um, and that's the other thing I would say. Uh, Anyone who wants to get in anywhere, just ask for help. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are ready to help. And, and I did the same when I was there. So, you know, I'm glad like my mom was able to support and everyone else, my friends were able to support, but uh, hard road to where I got. Definitely <laughs> difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is very important. Having your parents backing you all the time is... Because yeah. we really don't care what others are saying. But the moment when our parents are not on our side, I think this is what lets us down. Now. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it also helps in a way because when you're abroad, um, you know, especially in my situation, 
I left when I was 20 years old. So, you know, when you're abroad, people are worried about what you're doing there. Well, then you have your parents' trust and support, then that's very important. Also, as, you know, someone who is young has gone there with, you know, never have lived by myself, never have traveled by myself, just going to another country, just not knowing anyone there, or just knowing maybe one family when I get got there, to, you know diving into studying with like a different culture different language well it's the same language english but different accent like all of these stuff it's really hard as a young person to do that but i'm glad to have like a support of parents who are like no 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 you know it might take a while but you will get used you to get it the- that kind of encouragement really helps uh since you mentioned that uh, you also heard people saying telling you that go into engineering Uh, I also decided to do BSc same as with my friends when they decided to go into bachelors their parents were like go into engineering so of course i think you also must have heard from people ki why why did you get into bachelors like why did you choose BSc and why not engineering because in india engineering and medicine is the dominant thing you're, you're done with 12 you're a science student you have to get into engineering yeah. and uh, yeah. so but like i guess everyone who is listening this think they'll be motivated and they'll be proud that they have chosen to do bsc and yeah. they can do something good only if they're determined as you said you have to be motivated and persistent yeah i think in india um basic sciences do not get mm-hmm. as much um i guess understanding that what they do <laughs> as much as an engineer or or you know doctor would do so they know what an engineer would do or they don't know what a doctor do uh would do um with their life so they don't know what a scientist mm-hmm. does um and you know or even if they do know they just think oh bsc physics is for people who have like the worst marks where they cannot get in anywhere is right. like people who Those go who into Those don't get into medical or MBBS they, they yeah, land they up get in into BSc. Yeah. They or, reject a lot. Yeah, exactly. That's what they think and it was kind of funny. I <laughs> someone actually told me that exact same thing when I was saying no no I want to do BSc. He's like, "Why do you want to go there? The people go there if they didn't get into any engineering, right?" At the right? moment they're judgmental. Oh, she didn't get score, I think. She yeah. didn't score well in 12th. Exactly. But that's very wrong because in medicine in engineering they use the same physics and biology and chemistry yeah. that you learn here but at a very very basic to mm-hmm. very in depth theory they level are doing outside the lab you're like doing it exactly the lab. and if we're not developing those you know theories and and experiments that we're doing in the labs mm-hmm. that would not then translate to them using that in in outside it doesn't really make sense but i think a lot of the the thing stems from the fact that they don't know what happens after bsc or what someone does when they have a bsc msc or phd mm-hmm. in such basic sciences so i think science communication plays a big role in this especially with you know students in high school because yes. not not a lot of i don't know if i were to ever go to school here and ask who wants to go into bsc physics i don't know if i will see one hand right how many of you want to go into medical tons of hands up how many want to go into engineer because they know what they'll be doing after mm-hmm. right they have not seen people do things with bsc physics bsc chemistry things like that so you know role models visibility science communication is kind of what's going to help to eliminate this so parshati thank you so much for joining us 
it was great talking to you and i'm sure you've inspired all our listeners <laughs> to be a astrophysicist or just to take up you know what you love and do be persistent in what you love to do thank you so much bash thank you for having me i had a great time i hope the listeners enjoyed learning yeah, and let like me tell you you're awesome i'm so <laughs> glad that i met you and i found you oh thank you <laughs> i'm glad to have found you too and i'm i'm hoping that uh you know you keep doing this and keep mm-hmm. inspiring the next generation in in india uh, to take up basic sciences yes. <laughs> If you want to connect to Parshati she'll be more than happy to help you out uh, you'll find the links to connect to her in the show notes thank you parshati thank you thank you here's a word from our sponsor hey guys do you want to learn or improve your english here is a app for you utter app helps you learn english while chatting and improve your listening understanding and speaking Utter has 200 plus basic, intermediate and advanced English conversation topics and 100 plus grammar tests and exercises. It also has complete grammar curriculum for better sentence construction, translation in common Indian languages and a clickable dictionary. Plus, it is very simple to use. You can start conversing with chatbots and live tutors for just 10 to 15 minutes a day. With Utter app you will be able to improve your English conversation skills Utter will help you in speaking in casual and professional scenarios so download Utter app now and use code utter25 to avail 25% discount on premium membership